Welcome to another episode of the Property Nomads podcast. Today we're going to be deep diving into tenant evictions, obviously with everything that's going on in society at the moment. This aspect of property has become a little bit more challenging, but in order to help uh, answer some great questions, we're delighted to be joined by Alex Cook, who is the director of Helix Law. And over the last 13 years, Alex has specialised in commercial and complex property litigation acting for investors and landlords across the UK and internationally. Alex has been instructed in or supervised hundreds of landlord and tenant disputes. He's remained active throughout the COVID crisis, providing legal advice and resolving issues for landlords and investors involved in such disputes. Alex has also contributed to many well, has contributed to so many great articles recently, including things for Bloomberg, working on something with the Sunday Times as well. We'll put links to that in the show notes. Um, Alex, uh, thank you very much for your time today. No problem. No, good to join you, Rob. Thanks for having me. So tenant, tenant and eviction processes, I mean, they can be quite complicated at, at the best of times. Um, but I guess before we, we touch on that, um, just give us a bit more about your background. But what got you into this area of work in the first place? Oh, good question. Um, so I think, to be honest with you, I, I always enjoyed the um, public speaking or debating. I kind of naturally played um, devil's advocate. And so I always looked for the, I want to say the argument, but, you know, the, the other point and um, the other perspective. And so I uh, I actually started out, I, I sort of academically trained as a barrister um, at the outset um, many years ago now. Uh, I was very attracted to the bar. Um, unfortunately, my mum died, long story short, and so I... Uh, basically ran a couple of businesses whilst studying and you know it gave me a flavor for kind of um, I want to say almost entrepreneurship but you know business small business of a certain size um, working with people working with clients and that you know the barrister world it's it's very sort of pick up the brief you're the you're the face of, of the dispute but you don't really get to move any of the chess pieces you don't get to uh, have um, the sort of conversation with the clients on how to Sort of move things forward um, to try and resolve their dispute, which is in a particular relevant on more complex commercial matters, but perhaps less so with the landlord and tenant stuff. But you're still dealing with interesting people, and um, you know all of that. It sort of made me think, do you know what? Actually, I'm much happier being a specialist litigation solicitor rather than a barrister, and, and that sort of led me down this, this sort of path for my sins. <laughs> uh, no comment <laughs> on that. It's always good to get some. It's always good to get some background, and I can, you know, and I'm sure as people will attest to the, you know, the world is changing every single day, and there's been a lot of challenges with systems and processes involving uh, yeah, tenant disputes, whether that's regular residential or commercial. So, to give people a brief, to give people a brief understanding. Before all of this happened, and we're talking COVID, before all of this happened, if you wanted to remove a tenant from a property, what, what would that process have looked like in, in regular times? Okay, so um, good question. And I guess um, the, the process at a high level hasn't really changed. Okay, the detail has changed. But in simple terms, you're a landlord, you have a tenant, you've got a problem, let's say. Maybe you don't have a problem, maybe you just want to sell the property. But in any event, you have to serve a notice. That's the first step. Um, if the tenant remains when that notice um, expires, then you have to issue a claim, you have to obtain a court order, and then you have to enforce that court order, um, usually via bailiffs. The other option, of course, is that you can reach an agreement with a tenant. And I think, you know, again, this is often overlooked. There's this 
fear of, of sort of having to evict, etc. But you know, I can tell you now, it's something like one percent of uh, rentals end up requiring a claim, for example. So it's an incredible, you know, ninety-nine percent of uh, landlord and tenant relationships are absolutely fine. But it's the one percent that uh, you know you're pulling the, the pin out of the grenade, and it becomes a, a much bigger issue um, and leaves a kind of wake of destruction. But long story short, you serve notice, you get a court judgment, and you then enforce it via bailiffs. Um, and that was the position previously. What has changed, or at least a big change, um, at the notice periods, and uh, you know, subsequently leading into COVID, we, we've had an awful lot of legislation basically that has been issued kind of on the fly. Frankly, you know, it's it's almost an afterthought. There are bigger things going on. I think we all know that, particularly March, April time, um, and government really, rightly or wrongly, I don't judge. That's not my role, but you know, it it's sort of people don't want to be dealing with. Uh, housing and um, court disputes over evictions. Um, and so an awful lot of legislation came through the system, including obviously a stay on evictions, which means a, a pause on a landlord's ability to evict. And what we're now facing is is kind of the the, the impact of that, but perhaps we're, we're going to lead into that, I suspect. But yeah, the notice period is really the big change in, in the process at least in the short term, some longer term impacts likely to follow, which again, we can talk about more. But yeah, that's the current position that we're in um, in relation to notices having changed especially. Okay, so as you said, we'll touch on sort of every single point you just said there, because again, this whole sort of purpose of having the episode uh, anyway. Huge topic, sorry, Rob, yeah. Absolutely, I mean, we could probably go on for hours about this, but so we'll try and limit it to the 30 to... 40 minutes there. In terms of notice period timeframes, and say you mentioned a lot of, you know, the Coronavirus Act 2020, amongst other bits and pieces coming out there as well. So what would the normal notice period have looked like in comparison to what it is now? What what are you seeing? Okay, so um, notice periods pre-corona, meaning in my world, pre-March, okay, March 2020, you're looking at two months for a section 21, as it was then, um, or two weeks for a section eight. And Long story short, I suspect a lot of people will appreciate the difference already, but a Section 8 notice is used where there is some degree of tenant fault. So tenants not paying the rent or they're not looking after the property or something. So you'd use a fault-based notice, Section 8 notice. And that was 14 days um, pre-March 2020, whereas a Section 21, two months. And that's a vanilla, I'm the landlord, you're the tenant, I'd like about the property, please. Um, that would be a two-month notice that would be served. So that's the position kind of pre-March. And the effect that we're seeing nowadays, and again, I actually came off a recording this morning, sort of going off of one about the fact that we've got, because you know, it's virus related and the you know, virus is spread if people are meeting people. So I understand why, you know, as he said, appreciate that this isn't exactly number one on, you know, uh, the government's list. In fact, it's still Brexit as well. But anyway, let's, let's okay. not, not about doom and gloom. <laughs> um, what, what changes have been made then to to the timeframes and and how has that impacted the work that you have come across since March? 
that. I mean, good, good questions. So let's just deal with the first of those. So notice periods, okay. Um, both for a Section 21 and a Section 8 notice, the notice periods are now six months as a starting point. So forget your two months, forget your two weeks, you're now into six months as a starting point. Um, I'm focused here on England, just as an FYI, there's obviously different legislation that applies to Scotland and Wales, but let's just focus on England. Um, and so, it, you know, a vastly longer period of time now is required for landlords. You know, you, you, you've got a problem, say, uh, with a tenant, you're now serving a notice and you're having to sit on that for six months, which is extraordinary. There are some exceptions um, and, you know, just in terms of rent arrears in particular, you're looking now at if a tenant has more than six months worth of arrears, um, which seems like a, you know, I mean, it's a crazy amount of time to be carrying. But as a landlord, um, if the tenant is in six months arrears, um, then you can serve notice uh, as a section at eight notice. Um, and that still has a month notice period, but it's it's a damn sight shorter than six months. Um, so that's the current position as we sit here now, um, as painful as that is. Turning to the second of your question, just in terms of the impact on our work. Well, I think for most landlords, I should say really for most investors, most investors in property are landlords, okay? Um, that's an inevitable sort of consequence, um, unless you're, say, you know, developing out and selling and what have you, but focusing on the landlords and investors. The big impact has been that there's been a stay on evictions, and that stay only expired in September. And what I mean by that is you've not been able to issue a claim. So um, as simple as that, really, you know, the courts weren't accepting claims. And the reason for that was just from a public policy perspective, you know, we're all in lockdown. Um, they didn't want the local authorities having to try and find housing for people um, in, in the lockdown period, et cetera. So, um, you know, all of that has been a consequence. And so as a result, it's just literally, we're gonna hit the pause button um, on, on all evictions. Um, you know, I would say, again, speaking kind of on behalf of landlords and on behalf of investors, you're, you're at risk of kicking the can down the road there. That creates other problems. You know, landlords have not received significant government support, for example. Um, and, you know, although there's been much talk of mortgage holidays, you know, there's nothing really new in that. Those, that entitlement already existed. And it doesn't do you much good if you're a landlord, you've got mortgage payments, you're now possibly at risk of arrears because you've not been receiving rent for six months etc between march and september um so you know you, there's sort of a lot of consequences of that and we, we see this okay in our work um you know again for very obvious reasons there are no claims there's been a reduced number of claims unsurprisingly between march and september it's just not been possible but there's been an awful lot of talk about the impact of the end of the um ban on evictions um and that ban has expired it expired in september um it's too early to meaningfully talk about volume of claims, but there's been, you know, a lot of assessment or analysis on how many backed up claims, if you like, there are in the system waiting to be issued. Landlords, investors sat on problem properties, as it were, um, difficult tenants who aren't adhering to the um, the ASTs and the need to issue those claims. Um, you know, claim volumes naturally are not, you know, they're not sort of huge in comparison to the overall rental market. They're, they're sort of, you know, you're looking at tens of thousands, yes, a year, but in comparison to the millions of tenancies, it's, it's a low percentage, as I've said, that need a claim. But in the last six months, you've had not only that natural kind of backlog 
add up. It's kind of creating a curve, sorry, but a backlog of, of claims. Um, uh, but you've also had potentially a greater number of claims naturally as the impact of coronavirus on jobs and people's ability to pay rent, etc., um, kicks in. So, you know, it, it is too early to say, but there's been an awful lot of talk of tens of thousands of claims being wait, waiting, basically, to, to be issued. And I think there's some truth in that. Um, you know, we see it in terms of court turnarounds and um, the, the, the time that it's now taking to evict, um, which is it's going to be longer, frankly. But I hope that kind of answers the question. You know, we, we had a process pre-corona and unsurprisingly, the world has changed. And now I think there's basically a, a, a newish process. Um, as I say, still notice required, still claim required, but it's basically going to take longer. Um, that's the, the, the high level conclusion. It sounds, it sounds quite similar. Uh, sounds like there's a lot of, I say, pen. I'm just going to say pent up demand. That might not be the most technical phrase going because no. uh, it's the same with the changes that say the government made with regards to uh, stamp duty. I, I'm, admittedly, there has been other things regarding permit development and changes to you know planning legislation. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. it's similar to what you've said. It's this, it's this six months effectively. Of this, it's pent up demand. Uh, and, and from a stamp duty and buying point of view, they've sort of said, yep, hey, you know, take this until the end of, of, of March 2021. And most people have just gone, Phoom! you know, they're straight yeah. out there, they're, they're buying, there's bit, you know, I see a few things here and there, people bidding wars, doing this, doing that, because all that demand has just, you know, flooded out and gone, you know, burst. So would you say that's a fair correlation to what you've just explained with regards to all these claims? It's just an, a, a deluge of of things basically yeah i mean i i don't mean to kind of over egg it okay and, and the truth is at the moment there's a high degree to which we don't know we don't have the stats from the ministry of justice we're a month in we won't have those until january but at the same time you know i can look at the statistics on the number of claims that are being issued just naturally you know it's a percentage game it's a numbers game and you can see that actually consistently every year I think it's in the region of 100,000 claims, possession claims are being issued consistently year after year. It doesn't really fluctuate hugely. Well, if you turn that tap off for six months, what do we think is going to happen to those 50 odd thousand claims? Because I sit here and I think, well, they're not going anywhere. You know, they're still there. They're still floating around. And then we say to ourselves, okay, well, there's a likelihood then that when we turn the tap back on end September, October, those claims are going to need to be issued. Those are landlords, investors who are sat on problem properties uh, where they need to regain possession, those, those are likely to be added. That's immediately going to create a bottleneck in the courts because just that's just the natural run rate. And then we say to ourselves, my goodness, hang on a minute, we've got coronavirus here. What do we think that has done for claim numbers? Do we think that's decreased the number of likely claims or increased them? And I sit here and I say transparently, I think it's highly likely it's increased the need for claims amongst landlords, perhaps tenants not paying rent, perhaps not understanding the, the narrative that has come from government, other sources, that is at times unclear. You know, it's almost been impliedly suggested that it's okay, there's a ban on eviction, so don't bother paying your rent. Um, you know, I think at times that, that has been unclear. And so, you know, question mark, are we, are we are the courts currently dealing with a greater number than just those backed up claims or, or more? And I, and I think possibly more, frankly, um, ju just because um, of the circumstances that, we're now facing, um, so the courts are dealing with that right now. I, I think that one of the one of the challenges that most people have uh, is that you know this situation. We're not necessarily talking, 
irregular recession. We've got this external factor that we've, as a society, we've not dealt with for just over 100 years. You know, Spanish flu is really the last major thing uh, on this level. So it's interesting because, you know, I think anyone can go back and study history and sort of see the most ideal ways to deal with it. But then fast forward 100 years, you know, all all of us are flapping around with with X, Y and Z. Um, sometimes Sometimes you cannot plan for these things. Yeah, sometimes they will happen, but a virus is a virus; it will spread anyway. So it's interesting that all of this stuff's pent up, and you know, economically speaking, it's it's dangerous because it's just going to create, as I was saying this morning, that you know, what a government reaction to a lot of things, rightly or wrongly, is they're just printing, they're printing currency, printing currency. That's just our government, you know, worldwide. It's pretty much the same, and that's going to create. You know, economic catastrophe is possibly an economic Armageddon at some point. That sounds doom and gloom, but, you know, as you say, you've got to look at the numbers, you've got to look at the stats of it, and, and that's seeming, you know, that, that to me yeah. is the reality of it. But, um, I, think, I think what's interesting to me in all of this as well is that there's, there's been a continuing kind of narrative that I see, you know, just publicly, different organisations, I don't mean to kind of single any out, but right at the top of the list would be Shelter, and surprisingly. And they're creating this sort of narrative of an us versus them. And, and I'm not sure it's fair or justified. You know, um, landlords are, yes, they're providing a service. And yes, they're, they're sort of charging for that service. But landlords don't have a business without tenants. Most landlords and investors know that. They don't want to pursue claims. You know, people who arrive at my door, it's, you know, invariably, they've already been trying for months to reach out to tenants to resolve these problems, to see if there's any middle way they do not want to have to issue a claim at all and it's kind of you know really a last resort um and i don't really see that being reflected in in sort of what i hear it it's kind of you know particularly around the number of evictions it's almost now being pitched as though that in itself is a problem that needs to be tackled because you know bad landlords are evicting people throughout the global pandemic that's that's kind of the narrative that i hear i read and you don't really get the flip side of that which is they're only doing that because they've not been receiving rent for six months or even longer. I mean, I'm dealing with claims that were issued on six, nine months in March. And then now, you know, you're, you're well over a year of rent arrears. And those landlords have all got mortgages. You know, the vast majority of landlords in this country, they're not kind of, you know, your mass portfolio landlords. It might be they've inherited a property. Uh, they might own one or two. It's kind of that informal landlord-tenant sector. And it, it's just... Um, I don't think that's helpful, to be honest with you. I think we we have to just take a step back because this all feeds into policy, housing policy. Um, and it, it's it's not good for us all to kind of see this as an us versus them type debate. It, it really doesn't help anyone. Um, and, and this feeds into some of the legislative changes that I've, I've seen sort of talked about in terms of banning Section 21s. You know, that is bad for tenants, let alone bad for, for landlords. Um, you know, it really is, um, again, a separate point. Well, uh, let's let's actually go on to that because, uh, again, as you say, communication is important anyway and having that us versus them mentality, I think, you know, I've been sort of involved on and off in, in property four and a half, five years. So in comparison to other people, you know, people, some people have been doing this for decades and decades. But it seems to me that that seems to be the underlying thing that in years gone by and where we are now recording this, it, it does seem to be an us versus them mentality. But dipping into Section 21, as you, you just raised a, a great point, I mean, that, that, that created a hell of a lot of uproar when that was first yeah. mooted. So from your Shit. opinion, what, what, what would the consequences be if, if, if they were banned? 
Okay, so I think let's just take a, a starting point here. Section 21 notice is a no-fault notice, as I've said. So I'm a landlord, you're a tenant. I'd simply like my property back. I serve you a Section 21 notice. That then enables me at the moment to use an accelerated possession claim route. Okay, so as a starting point, I issue my claim, but there's no court hearing. A judge would look at that on paper. And as long as my notice is valid, I'm going to get a court order and ultimately I'm going to regain possession, which you'd kind of expect. You know, that that's the tenant has ignored the notice. Um, it's valid. Landlord should recover the possession of the property. Um, the reason that is important, I think, as a starting point to understand is that a lot of landlords use the no-fault eviction route of a Section 21, even where there is fault by the tenant. So in other words, you might be a landlord and have a tenant who's not paid rent for months, but I might still advise you to use a no-fault eviction via Section 21. And why would I do that? Well, it allows you, as landlord, access to the quicker, cheaper, more efficient process of the accelerated possession claim versus pursuing a Section 8 claim that a tenant can defend, can counterclaim, it takes longer, it incurs money, et cetera, et cetera, and costs. And the upside for you is actually very limited. You, yes, you might get a money judgment for the arrears, if there are any arrears, but against a tenant who might not have any assets or even a job or means to pay, that might just end up being a piece of paper with a stamp on it. So, you know, again, if we if we cut to the chase on that, you know, Section 21 notices are used a lot by landlords, even where there is fault. So that's why it's a bad thing for landlords, for Section 21s to be banned, because it's going to basically mean they lose the route to the, uh, the accelerated process. But it's actually also bad for tenants. And I never hear this really spoken about publicly, which is, is really odd to me, because it, it's really bad thing for tenants and the reason why is this if if we accept as a starting point that landlords use section 21 notices even where there is some degree of fault by the tenant the reality is that if they lose that they will have to still pursue a claim against the tenant via the fault-based notice the section 8 these claims are not going to go away you know my landlord my, my tenant's not paying the rent i'm going to have to issue a claim at some point i've got mortgage arrears or whatever it might be I've got to resolve this so those claims are still going to be pursued. So it won't save court time in that way, but it's, it's bad for a tenant because of the onus and the obligation on local authorities to rehouse tenants. And what do I mean by this? Well, if I'm a landlord and I pursue and I succeed in obtaining an order against a tenant on a Section 21 notice, that tenant is considered to have been made involuntary homeless. And that's a technical meaning. It means that the local authority has an obligation to rehouse that, that tenant so the tenant will not be made homeless. They will be rehoused where I, as a landlord, use a Section 21 notice. That is not the position with a Section 8 notice. If I, as landlord, pursue a claim against a tenant using a Section 8 notice, that and I, I win, I succeed, the reality is that tenant will be considered by the local authority to have made themselves voluntary homeless by not paying the rent. And so they will not have an obligation then to rehouse them. And the tenant will either have to go off and find another private landlord, might be difficult with a judgment against them, um, or they are going to be homeless. And so if you think about housing policy, the whole point of, as far as I can see in the media, etc., the argument being made for banning Section 21s is that landlords need to be kind of brought under control, there's too many evictions, bad for tenants, they need longer, etc., all of these sorts of arguments. But the reality is you're at risk of increasing homelessness by taking this approach. And that, that just... It can't be good for tenants, just as it's not good for landlords. So I, I, that's before we even get into the you're, you're turning off inward investment into 
social housing from private landlords. You know, you, you're obviously doing that, but you know, just on the detail, it seems to me to be disjointed. And that, and that, that will come down to communication. I mean, first of all, actually, an incredible point raised that, again, I don't think many people would have heard of or would understand. You know, it's, again, it's all the landlords need to be X, Y, Z, but yeah, scary, isn't it? I know it is, and it's it's pretty incredible because, again, you know, unless we have, I think I think this is also part of the bigger debate, okay, and the role that landlords, private landlords, the PRS, private rental sector, have in housing in this country. Because I look at it and I think, well, my goodness, if you turn off private sector investors, landlords from providing housing in this country, who's going to fill that gap? Because the state be it local authorities or central government, consistently, regardless as to which side of the political um, sort of barometer you're on, you know, there's a consistent lack of investment in housing. And so at the moment, if you turn off the PRS, private sector landlords, um, from also investing, continuing to provide property, you're facing a real housing crisis that you're actually, you're making worse because you're, you're turning off people who have the money and who are already investing in it. It makes it less attractive. We can't evict problem tenants. What am I going to do? I've got a mortgage, etc. Um, I've got a property sat there that's not generating any income. You've got to strike the balance here between um, those investors versus the rights of tenants. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that these policies are, are really thought with the long term in mind. Um, you know, the concern is that actually it's it's a really good news headline under a lot of public pressure from people like Shelter, Generation Rent and all the others, you know, um, a lot of pressure on po- politicians um, to, to push through these sorts of policies, but actually bad for tenants as well as bad for landlords. Would, would you would you say that was, um, that that's, uh, I suppose I was trying to think of the best way to phrase this question. Uh, basically, uh, I, I guess uh, a little while ago, there was, um, I think it was Labour, were, were mooting around the idea of having a minimum of three years for a tenancy agreement, which, yeah. I mean, that created a, a, an awful lot of uproar. What, what was your view on, on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's pretty incredible about that is that if you were to ask most tenants if they want to be tied into a property for three years. You know, I've rented previously. I don't rent now, but I have. I've been a tenant. I would not want to tie myself down for three years. You know, you're, you're kidding me. That's I, I need the flexibility. I wanted the flexibility at that time. Um, and so I think, again, it's a question of striking the balance here between... I've seen arguments that, you know, tenants are incurring costs and having to move too often and what have you, and that they need longer notice periods to give them time to prepare. Yeah, I kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear those arguments. I, I get it. Even then, I would say you're dabbling with legislation that has been around since 1988. You know, as the Housing Act 1988 sets the, the scene for this, um, these notices, etc. You know, it's been around a long time it, it, and it's worked and it's, you know, again, what, what has changed subsequently, apart from the cynic in me thinking, well, you know, we're going to chase the votes of tenants, um, you know, and we're under more pressure um, from from different organisations that have got organised in terms of their, again, this narrative of us versus them. Um, you know, that's the only change that I can see, you know. Um, you can deal with these things by, again, extending the notice periods. Fine, you know, perhaps there's an argument for that. 
But I think, you know, to, to kind of lock people down for years on end, I, I genuinely don't think it's what actually most people want. Um, and, you know, there's already nothing to prevent people from agreeing longer, short periods. But, you know, this it's kind of a separate point now. But, you know, again, landlords have to have confidence in their ability to evict problem tenants if they're going to be forced into long-term agreements like that. And, um, you know, this is another point on it, which is, you know, just it, it, the reason that landlords might say go for six months initially, which would be my advice, incidentally, with any new tenant before you get into a long, long-term um, sort of relationship, effectively go for six months initially, not least because that's relevant if you need to later evict them. You know, if you've entered into a two-year or a longer assured period, you can't serve a Section 21 to expire before the end. So, you know, you've got to keep all of that in mind. So it, the, there's an active disincentive in that way so on the one hand you've got the tenant stuff and on the other hand you've got the landlord reasons as to why it's a bad idea but i just think there's an awful lot um it's on the fly some of this thinking it doesn't feel to me as though it's got long-term policy in mind you know it's it's very much let's grab a headline uh, and and try and get some votes um that, that's what it smacks of to me um Again, along similar lines, I don't know if you, you sort of recall, but there was a lot of noise around um, fitness for habitation. And that came in against pre-COVID uh, last year. But, you know, it, that legislation, that actually, from a private landlord's perspective, almost no change. You know, that, that simply um, codified requirements that were already there. And so it was just an act of parliament that kind of gave people an access to a headline in a newspaper that sounded as though, you know, property should be fit for habitation. And I'm kind of like, you know, we're not in Dickensian Britain here. This is, there are proper housing standards. Tenants pursue disrepair claims every day of the week. So I sort of, um, they already have these rights. You don't need to put that in an act. It's, it's, it's just noise. Um, where's the substance? But anyway, <laughs> I digress. No, I, I love it. I love it. I, I say similar things uh, going back to that statue. And uh, I don't know whether some genius down in, in Whitehall was, thought about it or didn't think about it i'm gonna guess it's the latter if i had to pick out of the two and saying you know again with with stamp duty and you know what what's what, what's the effect that that's going to have well you know a lot of pent-up demands out there and people are buying and it, you know because you really need that psychological confidence of the people in what's going on the challenge i can foresee with that alex is that you've got this situation where you know the rest of the economy is not doing very well let's be honest and it will continue not to do very well for quite a while because we're dealing with virus and stuff like that, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, you're stimulating the housing market. So the housing market is doing well in a time when it really shouldn't be doing that well. And that, that you know, that will create an artificial bubble, which, you know, we know what happens to bubbles. So, but that's all, again, just go back to, the point that correlates with what you're saying. I don't know whether someone in, in Westminster has actually thought, uh, sorry, Whitehall has actually thought of that uh, with, yeah, with that policy because you'll look at it and go, oh, you know, no stamp duty or, or whatever. And people go, fantastic, cheers, government, and, and, and crack on it and don't think of the longer term impact. Do you think that's fair or am I just being a bit crazy? No, I mean, look, I, I, I agree. I've seen the stamp duty stuff referred to as kind of stealing next year's market and you know, kind of funding it this year, kind of bringing it forward. You know, anyone that might be thinking of doing something next year, thinking, oh, well, I may as well do it now. Um, but again, what, what are we trying to achieve here? What, what's the aim in all of this? Are we, are we trying to encourage inward investment in housing? Because I think we need to be. If that's not the policy, then, you know, from my perspective, it should be. Um, and that needs to filter right the way through, from social housing right the way through um, to sort of grease the wheels on, on the chain, as it were, um, in the housing stock. 
And so it's kind of a supply and a demand type approach. But on the one hand, with stamp duty, you're incentivizing that inward investment, which I get good. But on the other hand, by making evictions much more complex, time-consuming, etc., you're actually just turning off completely those investors. You know, that is not something that really... But people want to know that if, if people don't sort of honour the deal that has been struck in terms of paying rent or whatever it might be, that ultimately they can regain their asset. And they need to know that they can do that in a reasonable period of time. Um, you know, and that is what is currently under threat, I think, in terms of what's going on, striking that balance. Because... You know, for a lot of people, they may turn around and say, do you know what? I used to think of property as being something for a pension or, you know, an alternative bricks and mortar, the value of bricks and mortar. But when people start to understand how long it might take now, I don't know if that's going to continue. And that's not good for our housing economy, you know, for, for housing generally, um, including for tenants, as I've said. You know, it reduces the amount of housing stock available, which will naturally increase rents. We're already seeing that. Um you know, rents have gone up. And so it, it's kind of, again, I just think um, it, it's not for me party political in the sense of I'm not sure, you know, you can really pin this on anyone, um, you know, in, in terms of political parties. I saw some scary stuff being proposed by um, Jeremy Corbyn and Labour, which has obviously fallen away um, with his demise, we, we assume. But, you know, so I don't think it's party political in that sense. But I, I do think it's, it, this is a political issue now. And, you know, landlords probably need to get a little bit more organised and a little bit more vocal about the impacts that some of these decisions um, have um, in a much more organised, streamlined way than I've seen. Um, you know, the, the tenant organisations have much, much slicker marketing um, and PR um, sort of machinery behind them. So it's, not like the, uh, it's not like the car, our government to not have good PR. I'm just thinking of HS2. It's a, probably the one thing yeah. that strikes to mind. Um, you know. Uh, anyway, that, uh, again, different <laughs> different topics with different type. But I, I I love what you're saying, because I think that's so so true. And I think the challenge that's always going to exist with with what you've said is that you know politicians are you know, rightly or wrongly, whatever we want to believe, they're always going to look out for themselves and, and what's going to get what's going to get the people to vote for me to give me my seat in parliament. You know, for for next term. It's now, it's that dopamine, it's that immediate dopamine hit that they're looking for. And it's kind of, you know, the impact, as I say, the Housing Act 1988, that's that's the legislation that is our kind of go-to. This is not like last year or the year before or the year before that. This is, you know, it's it's stood the test of time, at least in, in the short-term-ish and legal terms. Um, you know, but I think, you know, woe betide, we dabble with this stuff to, to sort of a relaxed way because the implications and the impact can be, you know, the ripple, the waves are just extraordinary if we're not careful. Um, but yeah, yeah, we must have that long-term approach. Well, uh, Alex, this, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball for a little bit. So obviously, we touched on a variety of things. You know, Section Twenty One, Section Eight, so what they look like pre-March, what they're looking like now. This sort of pent-up demand that you're seeing uh, with everything that you're experiencing from your point of view. And again, it's a crystal ball job. I do appreciate that. What do you think's going to happen here? Um, what, what do you think people are going to see moving forward? Um, I think, again, let's just understand the context of the world that we're in. Because of the bottlenecks in the next six to 12 months, we know that the courts are going to be very busy. Okay, They're already busy. And it's not just with landlord and tenant work. There's a lot more debt-type claims um, floating around. Um, and there are also, of course, the commercial 
property elements that you know not something for today but all of that is a live issue too in terms of retail and just commercial property um having been impacted so you've got vast swathes of disputes trying to get themselves into the court process and that necessarily slows everything up so there's an immediate impact there but i think there's also policy changes that this is going to trigger because local authorities can't deal with lots of claims being concluded at the same time Okay, and the, the, the sort of the link between the courts and the local authority is on paper non-existent, but in reality, this is very real. It's the sort of thing that governs changes in court process by government precisely to soften the impact. Uh, dare I say it, flatten the curve. But you know, these are the sorts of changes that they um, will look at, and so I kind of expect, and we can already see some of this filtering through that the court process for evicting will change and. It will take landlords longer, but there will also be additional hoops that need to be jumped through. We see this at the moment in the short term, um, pre-March or until March 21, where landlords have to deal with reactivation notices or provide additional information to the court on the impact of coronavirus on the tenant. And if they don't do those things, then their claim will not be progressed. So you can already see that there are just these additional steps that are kind of creeping into the court process. And I think there'll be a lot more of that. And that's in the short term. In terms of policy, I think there are, again, some, some bigger issues that are now coming to the forefront. And from my perspective, I might say slightly cynically, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of frontline, we deal with a lot of these claims. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more talk about things like mediation, okay, alternative dispute resolution, ways for landlords and tenants to be encouraged to resolve their disputes without them needing to go through the court process. So I think there'll be lots more of that. We've already seen this in commercial courts that I deal with, um, you know, particularly high court. And, and actually, you know, even in the county court, there's now a big push before any claim is issued for the parties to look at alternative ways to resolve the dispute. Landlord and tenant has always been kind of excluded from that because um, actually for reasons that I can't really explain, but it's never really been something that's been a, a focus. I think the, the assumption is that tenants don't want to negotiate or that people have already tried. Um, that is, by the way, my experience, as I've said already. But, you know, again, I think this is all going to become more formally required to buy around time. So mediation, another big one, um, I think will be pushed heavily and everyone will probably at some point be required to mediate. And the other thing that is kind of just still floating around is the idea of a housing court, um, you know, to pull these disputes outside of the county court. And again, you've got to see this in the context where, these claims you know even pre-march pre-coronavirus you would have a busy possession claim list in a county court and it might be that they've got 30 40 claims on a tuesday afternoon or you know tuesday and they've got five minutes get allocated to each claim you know that's what we're talking about that was the reality in february january in any court in the country you could find that um, and now the volume is just going to be such that actually they were already talking about this. There was already this conversation going on, but pulling these out into its own specialist court. Um, we've done this in Scotland. It's not been good for landlords. It's um, taking a lot longer to regain possession. But again, I can see why, from a policy perspective, to try and keep the courts moving, etc., um, that may well rear its head again. So I think they're the kind of big two things that I can see, certainly longer term or, or medium term. Um, coming in, as well as in the short term, some additional hoops to be expected at any given moment to just be kind of lumped on us all. I think that's a fascinating, fascinating insight. 
to be perfectly honest with you. I think that's also a very good place to leave that for now. I think, uh, I don't know how you would feel about it. Maybe jump on uh, another episode, maybe, I don't know, maybe six months to a year to, you know, track the progress. If you'd be up for that, I think that'd be good. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Um, yeah, thanks very much. Lots going on. Now, finally, Alex, if people want to get hold of you, uh, people got questions to ask or want to you know, do some work with Helix, or how do people find you? Sure, thanks, um, Rob. Well, look, I'm a, I'm a partner. I own Helix Law. Um, we act nationally for landlords and investors with disputes, so I, I only deal with problems. Best way by far and away to contact me is via email. Um, my email address is ac, that's alpha charlie, at helix-law.com. Um, thanks for asking me. That's great. And well, as usual, we'll put all of that in the show notes and also put the links to the articles, uh, say for Bloomberg and, and bits and pieces like that. All of that will be in the, the show notes. But Alex, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for your insight as well. And yeah, I look forward to having a follow up uh, in 2021. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, Rob. Good luck to you all.